The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Much of kind of what the committee is able to uncover on the questions that it identifies is not about kind of what happens in the work of the committee itself. It's about kind of what cooperation are they able to get from witnesses and from document requests that they have. And if they don't get immediate cooperation, what does a kind of litigation strategy look like? If we learned anything from congressional oversight in the Trump years, we learned a lot about running out the clock. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 28th, 2021. Yesterday saw the first hearing of the Special House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th riots and insurrection. Four law enforcement officers testified before the committee, which consisted of the Democrats, along with two renegade Republicans, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. To chew it all over, I was joined in the virtual jungle studio by lawfare congressional guru, Molly Reynolds, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and Quinta Jurassic now a fellow at the Brookings Institution. We talked about how the first hearing went, what it says about where the committee is headed, the fissures within the Republican Party over how to handle this committee, and whether the committee will have enough time and focus to get to real accountability. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 28th, Quinta Jurassic and Molly Reynolds on the first January 6th hearings. All right, Quinta, get us started. What did we learn today at the first hearing of the January 6th committee? How was it as expected and how was it different from expected? The hearing today was really kind of a scene setter. Representative Benny Thompson, who's chairing the committee, had said that he wanted to start off with testimony from law enforcement, and that was really what we got today. There was testimony from two members of the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department, Officer Michael Fanone um, and Officer Daniel Hodges, and also testimony from two members of Capitol Police, Sergeant Aquilino Ganell and Officer Harry Dunn. And they essentially talked about what their experiences were on January 6th. I think all four of them have appeared in press reporting as people who had particularly harrowing experiences that day. Listeners might remember uh, Officer Fanon is the police officer who was pulled into the crowd in front of the Capitol and attacked pretty brutally and had a heart attack. Daniel Hodges is the officer who was caught in the door. Um, There's video of him screaming. Um, Gunnell had a heavy object thrown at him and is having extensive physical therapy um, and done, we can talk about later, but had some pretty harrowing stories about enduring racial abuse against him and other Black officers. So, The hearing to me really seemed to be a way of sort of reestablishing where the committee is starting um, and kind of saying, okay, it's been seven months since the events of that day. 
there has been a lot of attempts on the right among President Trump's supporters to kind of retcon January 6th and say, you know, it was just tourists. It wasn't that big a deal. It was Antifa, that kind of thing. And so what I imagine Thompson and the committee wanted to do right out of the gate was essentially say, this is what happened. It was incredibly brutal. There were videos that they showed, which might be familiar to people who watch the impeachment hearings, um, of exactly what happened, just to really drive home how horrific it was. And I think that sort of establishes the committee with kind of a, a base going forward, because it can now say, these events were horrific. We can all agree on this. We've heard testimony from these law enforcement officers. Now we need to find out exactly what happened. There's a lot of different nuances to that that we can explore. I will say my big takeaway, Ben, when when you ask what I was expecting, what I wasn't expecting, I was actually not expecting how uh, emotional the hearing would be. I think several of the witnesses, maybe all of them, um, choked up or cried at points. Uh, Representative Adam Kinzinger and Adam Schiff, uh, who are both on the committee, also both cried. Even as just somebody, you know, watching along on C-SPAN, I was pretty surprised at how much of an emotional response I had to watching those videos of January 6th. I've now seen them a number of times in a number of different contexts, but watching, you know, the body camera footage of someone being dragged into a crowd that I think we can fairly say is trying to kill him. And then watching the the footage from when he's dragged back and officers around him are screaming for a medic. It really doesn't get any less jarring and upsetting. So I imagine that maybe the, the effect that the committee wanted to have to sort of remind everyone just how incredibly awful that day was. Uh, but it definitely struck me. Molly, what were your big takeaways? Yeah, so I will echo a couple things that Quintus said. Um, one is sort of just the level of seriousness um, and the level of emotion that were involved in the hearing. I uh, I think it's for folks who haven't spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill, it's sometimes easy to forget that this is a place where all of these people go to work every day to do their jobs. And so the the degree to which um, the members of the committee had their own personal safety threatened in the course of doing their daily work, I think is uh, just a, a hugely central part of why it is so important that there is a thorough investigation here. I mean, I think to Quinta's point about kind of starting the committee's work with a hearing involving four law enforcement uh, witnesses, I think that in addition to that being powerful and important as a kind of baseline for the investigation, it also acknowledges an important reality of doing investigative work in the legislative branch, which is that uncovering new facts takes time. And so if the committee, as I think they did, wanted to kind of seize the moment, get started in their work, uh, and get the get their ball rolling uh, with a hearing, here we are in, in July, they needed to start with one that didn't require a lot of additional um, new information or gathering new information or trying to convince new witnesses to appear. We can talk about sort of what uh, we're learning about the Chairman Thompson's plans for the future of the committee. But I think at the end of the day, if they were going to start, they there was a, a a practical advantage to starting with a hearing that, as Quinta said, featured four folks whose stories had already been told, at least pieces of them, in um, in other formats, and having that be again kind of this scene setting uh, moment uh, for the committee as it at the same time is hiring staff, getting those staff oriented, and starting to do other investigative work and make decisions about kind of where it's going to focus that work going forward. So one thing that we did not see in this hearing that people who watch Congress uh, expect to see a lot of is conflict between the members of these committees. Obviously, that's because Nancy Pelosi vetoed the members of the Republican Party on the committee who were most likely to be or promised to be adversarial with respect to the 
purpose of the committee and included two Republicans who, however conservative they may be, ally with the Democrats for purposes of this sort of accountability exercise. I'm interested from both of you, Molly, you first, what did we learn about what the dynamics of this committee are going to be without Jim Jordan or uh, Banks or any other Republican other than Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger? Yeah, so I think it, it sort of reminds us of previous moments in the history of Congress when there was more kind of serious bipartisan efforts to do investigations of various kinds. I think there was another sort of um, thing thing to note about this hearing is that it was a little bit more um, flexible in format. I'm not uh, sure whether there was a, a clock running on the witnesses, but it, it you you heard less of the you know the gentleman's time has expired that sort of thing, and really allowed for um, some it just sort of flowed in a way that again in more contentious adversarial hearings that we've gotten used to in Congress that you sort of see see less of. I do think that kind of as we go forward, um, and we think about other kinds of witnesses who might appear before the committee, we may end up with, in the future, plenty of adversarial moments, but they're more likely to be between a witness who um, is perhaps reluctant to be appearing before the committee and maybe does not want to share all of the information that he or she has. And then the committee on the other side, as opposed to contentiousness and conflict between members of the committee themselves, you know, all four of these witnesses were there to tell incredibly powerful and horrific stories about what happened to them individually on January 6th. And, and the committee's goal was to get those stories into the record and to get them um, again out into the, the public. Whereas I think in the future, we are quite likely to see um, more adversarial moments between witnesses and committee members. But it does seem to me, Quinta, that the interests of the members are unusually well aligned here, that the Democrats have, leaving aside any good government reasons that anybody might have for accountability, the Democrats have a partisan interest in hanging this around the neck of Republicans and Donald Trump and the Republican House leadership. And similarly, Kinzinger and Cheney have the same interest because this is the issue that divides them from their co-party members. And if the thing doesn't, doesn't come out telling the story that they want to tell, their reason for differentiating themselves from the rest of their party kind of fades with the story. And so it seems to me everybody on that committee, and I think that's a, a good thing because it's an important story, everyone seems to have an interest in painting this in as vivid a way as possible. I think that's right. I mean, if you want to frame it in a less sort of crudely political sense, you could say everyone on the committee has defined themselves by the fact that they care about and want to protect the American tradition of liberal democracy. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, I mean, Kinzinger and Cheney, I think if I'm remembering correctly, pointed out, you know, the fact that look, you know, I'm a Republican. I'm here because I care about what happened on January 6th. I take it seriously and I am aligned with my Democratic colleagues on this issue and that that, as you say, is the the really crucial dynamic here. I will say, as I watched the hearing to sort of build on, on Molly's point about how it was maybe a little more sort of fluid than we're used to, I did sort of feel like I was missing something and then realized midway through that what I was missing was, you know, that every five minutes, the interjection from the Republican who wants to talk about how, you know, Nancy Pelosi didn't do enough to secure the Capitol, or actually, it wasn't Donald Trump's fault at all, which I think is in one way, you know, maybe suggests that we all kind of have Stockholm syndrome from listening to those so many of those hearings, but also is a reminder of what hearings can be like, if that sort of ping ponging back and forth isn't there. 
Yeah, and I I guess the question is, do we end up with a kind of, you know, almost effectively a 9-11 commission like party love fest on this thing in which the people who are outside the consensus are, as they did today, having a press conference in front of the Justice Department? Or are there other fissures, Molly, that we can expect to open up among the the members of this committee? So I don't know whether I expect there to be fissures. I do think it will be interesting to see kind of what portions of the investigation uh, get focused on by the committee. And I think here, the kind of relevant expertise of some of the members is really important. So uh, Benny Thompson, who's chairing uh, the committee, is the chair of the Homeland Security Committee. He is, as we know, the uh, Democrat who attempted to um, successfully in the House negotiated the deal with his Republican ranking member for uh, legislation to uh, do an independent commission on uh, January 6th. Um, He obviously comes to the chairmanship of this committee with the expertise in kind of what's in the Homeland Security jurisdiction. Then you also have Zolofgren, who's the chairwoman of the House Administration Committee, which is, as she mentioned, um, the one with jurisdiction over um, the Capitol Police and all of the other kind of operations of the Capitol complex itself. And so to what degree do we does the committee sort of go down the road of exploring the intelligence failures at the Department of Homeland Security that led to um, insufficient intelligence for the Capitol Police about what was going to happen on January 6th? To what extent does it go down the road of kind of learning about what were the failures of the Capitol Police leadership? Um, Quinta and I have written about kind of what we learned about both of those areas from the the Senate's two committee report um, that came out earlier this year. And so I think one of the big questions for me about where this committee goes is basically what does it focus on? It can't or it will be a challenge for it to focus on everything that we might think is really important about January 6th. I think one of the, um, the interesting for me, moments in the hearing was when Thompson asked each of the witnesses to discuss um, what they would like to be investigated. Um, And there was a place where, again, I think you saw some interesting, um, if kind of subtle differences between some of the things that the two U.S. Capitol Police officers talked about. So um, Officer Goodell, for example, talked about, you know, needing more security at the Capitol itself um, and how a lot of the Capitol complex's posture towards security dates back to September, uh, the post-September 11th moment. And so you sort of had, had that on one side, and then you had um, the two uh, the two MPD officers who were a little bit more focused on saying that the investigation needs to be about kind of Trump and people in power um, and kind of what's above the, the level of, of the officers and who played a role in having uh, sort of inciting these rioters and these insurrections to the Capitol on January 6th. And so I think, again, um, it's not so much that I expect there necessarily to be tensions, but I do think that the committee will have to make some decisions about kind of where it wants to focus. Um, Quinta, I don't know what, um, what thoughts you have on, on that. Definitely. I mean, as you said, Molly, we've written about that in the past. I was also really struck by the move that Thompson made asking the witnesses what they wanted the committee to pursue, because I think the the answers were really striking. I think all of them said that they wanted investigations into, you know, not only the rioters themselves, but the people in high places who contributed to the riot. I think Fanon explicitly said he wanted Trump investigated. Dunn uh, said there was an attack carried out on January 6th and a hitman sent them. I want you to get to the bottom of that. And Hodges said in, I think, a really striking way, that he wanted Congress to address whether anyone in power had a role in this, if anyone in power coordinated or aided or abetted or tried to downplay or tried to prevent the investigation of this terrorist attack, because we can't do it, saying essentially that, you know, as a police officer, he sort of works on the ground level and he needs Congress to step up and sort of take the next step. 
that really jumped out at me because as you're saying, Molly, I think there's you know, there's a lot of different ways that this investigation could go. And I could absolutely imagine a world in which it, you know, focuses on law enforcement investigations or intelligence failures or, you know, the specifics of how the rioters got into the Capitol or something like that, rather than sort of elevating their gaze and saying to what extent did Trump himself and the people around him or Republican members of Congress who Fanon also singled out, to what extent did they play a role? Um, So I was really struck by how all four of the witnesses really seemed to be saying explicitly, we want you to go sort of as far up as it gets, essentially. But this seems to me to be a a sort of a planned moment. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way. But, you know, you have the Republican uh, who are really working hard to discredit this committee, blaming the entire set of events on Nancy Pelosi. You have this uh, crazy event at the Justice Department this morning. And it seems to me this is Benny Thompson and the members of this committee getting the top cover of the the career law enforcement officers saying, you should investigate whether your colleagues and Donald Trump had any role in this, right? This is not, uh, this is a very sophisticated move by the leadership of the committee and frankly, by the officers testifying to bless the committee, you know, in the sight of everybody who is trying to discredit it. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, that that that's what I was trying to say. To be clear, I don't know, you know, what conversations they had ahead of time, but I do think absolutely it is extremely useful for the committee to be able to now say, look, you know, we had these four American heroes tell us that they want us to look into the complicity of the Republican Party and see, you know, what Kevin McCarthy said and what Trump said and and that. And I think it is not a coincidence that a lot of the hearing was spent kind of building up the four witnesses as, you know, like I said, as American heroes. They've all served in law enforcement. There was definitely a bit of sort of, you know, see Democrats can also be in favor of law enforcement. Gunnell has a military record. Um, Fanon said that he joined the police after 9-11 because he wanted to, you know, serve and protect his country. And so now that the committee has kind of established, you know, these four men who have exactly the kind of background that, you know, in a sort of traditional sense, you would fet as, you know, the best of America, right, that they're working to protect the community. They want us to go and investigate and, you know, overturn the stones that Kevin McCarthy really doesn't want turned over. I think that absolutely helps them politically. But it was also striking to me that, you know, Benny Thompson is looking for that top cover, as you put it, right? Because you could absolutely, you could imagine an investigation that just doesn't want to go there, but they seem to want to. And I know that Adam Schiff, at least, has made noises about being ready to sort of come out blazing with subpoenas. Um, So given those things, seeing, you know, reading them side by side, it, it did strike me that they are setting themselves up for what could be a potentially very aggressive investigation. So, Molly, is that where this is heading? I mean, you know, we should spend a little time talking about the Republican leadership's response to this committee. But it seems to me if you're Benny Thompson and Nancy Pelosi right now, you've got, I guess, seven or eight members of your own. You've got Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, who are clearly going to vote with you on on major procedural questions as as well as seem to agree on all of the substantive matters. And you have the Justice Department today announcing that it would not be asserting executive privilege with respect to any Trump administration officials. Seems to me you're in a commanding position to do whatever you want. Uh, should we expect the committee to be, you know, shock and awe, fast and aggressive? So we're certainly seeing a number of indications that the committee 
could be quite aggressive quite quickly. So you mentioned, Ben, the reporting out today um, about the Justice Department not blocking the participation of um, Trump-era officials in the investigation. There's also some reporting from after the hearing today about the committee perhaps going kind of straight to subpoenas and not necessarily doing letters to request cooperation. You also um, saw Thompson sort of intimating that he may be planning to bring the committee back to do another hearing, um, at least one more hearing during Congress's August recess. So there's certainly kind of the signals that that might be where this is going. A couple of potential sort of challenges. One is that you know, hearings are a really important part of any congressional investigation. They can, again, among other things, be really powerful for kind of creating a shared set of facts and sending a public message about what happened. But there are other parts of a congressional investigation that have to happen behind the scenes in terms of reviewing documents. And in a in an investigation like this one, you get into all kinds of questions about um, what's classified information. Do you have staff who have the ability to review that classified information? Um, that sort of thing. And so even if um, we start to see um, some very quick public moves, it's important to remember that a lot of the less public work of the committee simply will take longer than, you know, the August recess or um, even the next couple of months to do in a, in a good and serious way. Another sort of potential challenge is that, so if there had been, you know, when we, when we talked about the independent commission, I think both in writing the three of us um, and perhaps on, on a previous podcast, one of the things we talked about was the question of like, how long would an independent commission have to do its work? That was one of actually the major sticking points in trying to, to reach a, a deal on that. Um, but it, an independent commission could have conceivably taken as much time as it needed if they could have gotten to um, agreement on that question. This committee, however, will last until the end of the Congress um, at the end of next calendar year in 2022. If Democrats lose control of the House in the in the midterms, which history tells us is a decent proposition, then the committee goes away. You know, the Republicans are not going to um, to continue to have a select committee on um, on January 6th if they control the House. So, kind of back to my my point earlier about having to make choices about where to focus kind of remembering that there is a deadline looming at the end of, um, of 2022 and you know how much information can you uncover and get out there uh, between now and then is, I think, also going to be a real constraint here. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Yeah, so that brings me to a really, I think, interesting question, which is what should the committee be focusing on here? So let me just break it up into categories of issues and see what you all think. On the one hand, there's the 
block of issues that the Senate focused on, right, which you can do in a very bipartisan way, as the Senate showed, which is the sort of institutional failures of law enforcement and the bad positioning of the Capitol Police uh, for fast action in a situation like this, as well as the uh, failure to call out the National Guard in a timely fashion and the delays, right? That's one block of issue. Second block of issues are the role of Donald Trump, his administration, political, certain political organizations and certain members of Congress in the events, right? The, the, the sort of that sort of accountability set. Third set of issues is kind of the, you know, the intelligence failure. Why didn't we have better window into the activities of these groups than we did? And then, you know, maybe a fourth set of questions related to the 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 second in a deep way is how much of a spontaneous eruption of anger was this and to what extent was there a sort of planned coup kind of situation? And I guess I, I'm starting with you, Quinta, interested in both of your sense of what the weight of this committee's work is likely to be on these four baskets of issues, or if you think there are others, what those are. Given that their time is limited, how do you think they're likely to spend it? That's a really good question, and I, I have absolutely no idea. Um, I, I will say for the reason that I just indicated, I do wonder and I sort of feel like it might be increasingly likely that they do go after the sort of the big question of to what extent was Trump involved here? Part of the reason why I wonder that is because they now have this kind of mandate from the four law enforcement officers who testified. It just makes it easier for them to do it, politically speaking, than for any of the other committees that are investigating. For example, the the Senate committees, I believe, are, are still investigating. So that's part of it as well. And then also the fact that the Justice Department has, as we said, indicated that it's not going to stand in the way of testimony from former Trump officials. Granted, there are a lot of problems that potentially come with that. For example, you could imagine, you know, if you try to get, say, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to testify and he says, well, you know, Trump personally told me that he's not waiving executive privilege, so I don't care that DOJ says that I should go ahead. I'm not going to do it. Then you get into the question of, you know, okay, how do you want to enforce the subpoena? And then you end up with some pretty tough problems. On the other hand, if Congress is going to have to address those problems sooner or later, now might kind of be the the time to do it in this committee as sort of the the opportune moment for sort of flexing the, the Article 1 muscle a little bit. That said, I would definitely worry if they wanted to really focus their fire on these sort of questions of, you know, political influence to what extent the riot was known about or planned in advance. I would certainly worry that we could potentially lose valuable insights about, say, why the FBI was so blasé in the face of such an enormous pile of public evidence that far-right movements were planning violence on January 6th. So it is, I mean, it is trade-off. It's just a series of trade-offs, as you say, and I'm, I'll be interested to see which way the committee goes. As you and I have both written, Quinta, I mean, I think the FBI has a lot to answer for here. And I think it, Absolutely. Would, it would be a shame, honestly, in my view, if that got ignored out of zeal for political accountability, which I think is laudable and attractive, frankly, but I, I hope it would not come at the expense of some institutional accountability for the Bureau on on its own intelligence failure. Molly, what do you think? Are we are we headed like a laser beam for, you know, the uh, confrontation over the political accountability side of this? Yeah, so I tend to agree with Quinta that you can, at the very least, sort of see uh, today's hearing as laying some groundwork for 
a focus on kind of who knew what and when did they know it and who was involved in decision making and uh, and that sort of thing. And I think Quinta's point about sort of what is this committee's comparative advantage in relation to other congressional committees who are continuing to do oversight of what happened on January 6th is a really important one. Sort of this, um, I think one additional thing this committee has is it has kind of political capital to uh, to throw around? And does it throw that capital around in pursuit of answers to some of these big questions? Um, I don't know. I will say that as someone who cares like very deeply about the health of Congress as an institution, your first bucket of questions, Ben, are really important. Um, questions about operationally, what happened on January 6th and why were the Capitol Police ill-equipped to deal with it? Why did the horrific things that happened to the four officers who testified today, why did they happen to them? Um, And I think some of that is about the insurrections and some of that is about, as we know from the Senate report, failures to prepare for something like this. And I'm concerned that this committee is not really going to dig into a lot of those questions, in part because Congress is not especially good at asking and answering hard questions about itself. That was, again, as Quinta and I have written, one of the reasons why I personally was so in favor of um, an independent commission, because I thought it would be better positioned to really look at the internal workings of Congress and answer some of those questions. And so um, I think that's a really important element of this. But I I am also concerned that um, this committee may not take up those questions, and it may not take up those questions for good reasons in that it is using its more limited bandwidth to ask and answer some of the kinds of questions that only it is positioned to do. But I I wouldn't want us to ignore those issues as well. Tell me though, I, I mean, another argument that you could make if you were Benny Thompson for not focusing on those issues is that the Senate seems like it's focused on those and so, the, so the effort yes. would be duplicative the Senate is not well positioned to look at, you know, Donald Trump and Paul Gosar and Kevin McCarthy. Sure. But we also know from the report that the Senate the two Senate committees released earlier this year that um, they did not get full cooperation from officials on the House side in their investigation, and they did not get full cooperation on some of the operational questions around things like calling out the National Guard from the executive branch. And so um, while that, as again, as Quinta and I have written, while that sent that two committee Senate report was an admirable and incredibly important piece of work and anything else that those two Senate committees produce, I expect also to be well done as that first report was. I do think that there are questions on kind of the operational level, in part for institutional reasons about the Senate doesn't investigate what the House does. And we should have answers too, um, and that will need to inform uh, potential reforms to things like the governance of the Capitol Police. And it's just not clear to me that this committee is going to go down that road, again, perhaps for good reasons, because they have limited time and limited bandwidth and are better positioned to investigate other equally, if not more important questions. But again, as a person who who really cares deeply about the U.S. Congress, it's important to remember that there are um, very kind of in the weeds issues about what happened on January 6th that we should not just kind of let go by the wayside. So let's talk about the Republican side. The division between Republicans seems very stark here. You have the hardcore fringe. You have the leadership, which is essentially allied with the fringe for purposes of this issue. And then you have the the renegades uh, who are actually serving on the committee. What can we say about Republican strategy with respect to this committee? And is it likely to be effective? Quinto, your thoughts? I will say just before we started recording, I went to check and see if Kevin McCarthy, who's the uh, House Minority Leader, had said anything about the hearing. And apparently he told a reporter that he he hadn't seen it because he had been in back-to-back meetings, 
which for me at least reminded me a lot of the dodge that Republican members of Congress used to use when Trump had tweeted something particularly egregious and they would just say, oh, you know, I, I've been busy. I haven't seen it. So I thought that, you know, if you compare that to the sort of clown show press conference at the Justice Department with uh, Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene, I do think, Ben, as you kind of pointed out, there's maybe a, a difference in style, if not a difference in substance between Republican leadership and the sort of the far out fringier folks. Over the last few weeks, as we've had this kind of back and forth between McCarthy and Pelosi, I think there's been a lot of discussion that I've seen about whether, you know, they're outplaying one another or whether, you know, say McCarthy just got exactly what he wanted, right? So one way to say it would be, you know, Pelosi outmaneuvered him because he now ends up with this committee that he has no control over because he decided to pull all his members and it can basically just do whatever it wants. And he's not going to have opposing voices there sort of sticking up for the GOP party line. On the other hand, the counter argument is, well, perhaps that's good for him because it makes it easier for him and other Republicans to just dismiss the committee's work as purely partisan um, and tell their base not to engage with it at all. I don't know what the right answer is. I mean, I do kind of think that the fact that there aren't Republicans on the committee and that, I mean, other than Cheney and Kinzinger, obviously, and that even if there were a sizable Republican bloc, they wouldn't have power to uh, block any subpoenas, means that the sort of Democrat plus Cheney plus Kinzinger bloc would always have had a lot of power. And so any benefit that Republicans might have had from a sort of more evenly split committee or from an uh, independent commission and kind of, you know, uh, moderating conclusions a little perhaps was gone. So I think he McCarthy may be betting a little bit that he can just kind of tell Republican voters not to pay attention to this committee or, you know, to treat anything that comes out of it as a lie and that they'll believe him and that that hold on really core Republican voters will work enough to counteract um, any damaging material that does come out of the hearing, sort of hoping that the, you know, the bubble of the right wing media ecosystem will hold I, I don't know if he's right. I, I guess we will see. I will say that the the testimony that came out of the hearing today does not make it look particularly good for Republicans. But we will see if, uh, you know, Fox or Newsmax decide to air any of it. What do you think, Molly? Is is this a a good play by McCarthy or is this has he basically by seeding the field what Benny Thompson was able to show today was that you can put on day after day, or at least the first day of a riveting uh, set of hearings that even the right-wing ecosystem won't be able entirely to ignore. And what McCarthy effectively did is he made sure he has no way to interrupt it. Yeah, so I guess I'm of the mind that if sort of McCarthy had picked slightly different Republicans who Pelosi was willing to seat, where Pelosi had accepted um, Jordan and Banks in addition to the other, I believe, three um, Republicans who she was willing to accept, that that would have, and I, I guess I would go back to something kind of Quinta raised earlier about how we were watching the hearing with kind of the expectation that where is the interruption from Jim Jordan? And just that if there were... Republicans who were determined to try to undermine the work of the committee on the committee, that that, at least in the public facing part of the committee's work in the hearings, like that is what we would have seen on television today. And that that, I think, even with a set of law enforcement officials as the witnesses, I think that that's what Jim Jordan would have tried to do today. Um, there would have been a lot of, as Quinta said, shouting about Nancy Pelosi's responsibility. And so I, ge I guess what I would say is that it doesn't much matter to me whether this is good politics or bad politics for Kevin McCarthy. And that at the, the end of the day, when a sizable part of your party is 
willing to dismiss what was a horrific attack on their own personal safety as something like an ordinary tourist visit and just continually say that, you know, we have to move past it, that 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 reality of a sizable component of the House Republican conference overwhelms any concerns that I have about whether the politics are good or bad for the Republicans. Yeah, I meant it less as a political question than as a, I mean, how it plays electorally or any of that, then there is a certain amount of, you know, gamesmanship that's happening related to how this committee does its business over the next few months and or 18 months. And also what the environment is in which its findings are received. And a lot of this bears on that, which I suppose is, is broadly speaking, the political effects. But I didn't mean it in terms of like what the poll data say. I mean it in terms of you know how likely are we to get a an outcome and a set of findings that are you know at least within a, the broad center of american politics generally accepted yeah and i guess what i would say is that to the extent that having the jim jordans of the world on the committee was going to make it more difficult for the committee to do its investigative work I think it might be more likely that we get substantive conclusions than if there were some of these Republicans trying to undermine the work of the committee at every turn. But at the end of the day, again, to return to an issue Quinto brought up earlier, much of kind of what the committee is able to uncover on the questions that it identifies is not about kind of what happens in the work of the committee itself. It's about kind of what cooperation are they able to get from witnesses and from document requests that they have. And if they don't get immediate cooperation, what does a kind of litigation strategy look like? If we learned anything from congressional oversight in the Trump years, we learned a lot about running out the clock. And so that, I think, that to me is as big a question as what would be different if there were uh, Republicans participating on the committee beyond Cheney and Kinzinger. I think, Ben, to riff a little bit on your point about the odds that we end up with a report that is sort of accepted within the center of American politics, One of the lessons that I think is really important for the committee and that they seem at least to be proceeding in a way that's not obviously antithetical to it is just to kind of go full speed ahead, damn the torpedoes without worrying too much about who's going to accept what they find. And what I mean by that is not worrying, you know, is this going to upset Trumpists, which we know that it will, not worrying too much if it's going to upset, you know, never Trumpers, maybe if there is, you know, they do somehow find something bad about, you know, some funding request from Capitol Police that Nancy Pelosi didn't approve, you know, putting that in the record, even if it might upset Democrats, that I think that the important thing here is less to create a record that is broadly accepted and more to create that record period that in a point in time where the facts of January 6th are so contested, um, mostly on, on one side of the political spectrum, obviously, what the committee really needs to do and what it seems to be committed to doing is searching for the truth and putting that down. And even if it isn't fully accepted as the truth right now, I do think that there is going to be value in having that as a historical record. Um, And also having it for the victims of January 6th, um, Michael Fanon said at one point that what he felt he needed in order to heal was for the truth to be found. And so I would argue that that is more important um, in understanding what constitutes success in the committee's work. I will just add to that in response to something you said earlier, Molly, about the running out the clock gambit is that it is not clear to me that what worked in the Trump administration will work now 
And the reason for that is that the Justice Department, I think, can be expected at least to take contempt citations by this committee seriously. And whereas during the Trump administration, you know, the Justice Department all but invited witnesses to stiff the committee and was clearly not going to enforce a contempt citation. And so I think a well-advised, well-counseled witness who was thinking of not showing up or of, you know, tendentiously asserting executive privilege would really have to reckon with the possibility that the committee would pass a quick contempt citation, uh, the House floor would affirm it if necessary, and the Justice Department would actually act on it. And I think that may change the calculation, at least of rational actors who are thinking of trying the run it out the clock approach. That's, um, I think that's completely fair. I also think that there may be some individuals who in your in the characterization you just made would be irrational actors. I have no doubt of that. <laughs> Thirding that point. Um, and that um, depending on who falls into which camp, we could have um, have some, again, challenges about getting cooperation. And then I'll also just say that it's actually not just about getting individual witness cooperation. It is also about simply the volume of material that may need to be reviewed in this case. So I forget exactly what the the number is, but I think it's in the like the tens of thousands of hours of camera footage that needs to be processed as part of the prosecution of people who have been arrested for uh, entering the Capitol on January 6th. And so that's a that's sort of a different um, time constraint. It's not a kind of purposeful someone tries to run out the clock. It's simply do you have enough time on the clock to deal with all of the information that you might need to deal with? We are going to leave it there. Molly Reynolds, Quinta Jurassic, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Hamza Situ of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare podcast on all the socials. Buy our merch at thelawfarestore.com. Leave us a rating or review wherever you found us. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.